Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is a frequent guest, Joel Zimberg. He's a the director of Public Health and American Wellbeing Initiative at the Paragon Health Institute. He is a senior fellow with the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and he's an associate clinical professor of surgery at the Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine. Uh, earlier, he had been the senior economist and general counsel at the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, this was from 2017 to 2019. And he has been a key contributor for City Journal throughout this, the COVID-19 pandemic. And he continues to cover public health, medicine, and economics for us today. So, Joel, thanks very much for joining us again. Oh, my pleasure. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd like to start off with the new word that's, uh, that's coming at us uh, from every source, the, the so-called triple-demic, um, which refers to the circulation which is going on right now of three diseases, COVID, the flu, and the common respiratory virus, RSV. Um, you know, they, they may have also noticed a familiar course, listeners, uh, from the public health bureaucracy and the mainstream press imploring us again to wear masks and take extreme precautions before seeing family. Um, and some have even called for the reimposition of mask mandates. So as you wrote for City Journal in a recent piece, it's, in your view, safe to ignore this, this kind of triple-demic hype. Um, so what, you know, what prompted this new round of uh, hysteria, really, as you describe it, and why has it been so overstated? Well, I think what's happened is that you, first of all, you've had a situation where for the previous few seasons, uh, you had an artificially low level of uh, respiratory syncytial virus, the RSV that you referred to, and you've also had an artificially low level of flu, so uh, influenza. So that when we return to sort of more normal levels, it suddenly seemed like we were at a very high spot. Uh, secondly, you had a situation with RSV and with the flu where the season seemed to start a little earlier than normal. Uh, so, you know, for example, the flu normally runs from October to April. You, you were starting to get relatively high values in, in a little bit earlier than normal. Uh, and it led people to think, oh, this, this is something going to be a, a problem. You're going to have all three diseases, RSV, uh, influenza, and COVID occurring at once. Except the problem, you know, for that narrative is that uh, they're not really surging simultaneously. You had uh, RSV peaked, uh, it's basically mid-November. It's been steadily down since that time. Uh, and it's at levels that are below where we were in previous seasons, you know, normal RSV seasons uh, for this illness. Uh, you had flu starting a bit earlier uh, than uh, normal. Uh, and it's was it seemed to be pretty severe season, but it seems also to be abating, uh, and we're not at a point where uh, we're necessarily going to be anything out of the ordinary. So, for example, uh, the latest figures are showing about 20 million cases thus far, 
uh, hospitalizations of 210,000, deaths of about 13,000. But to put that in context, you know, you you know, that's 20 million of, and a normal season has about nine to 41 million cases, and a, a normal a season has about. Uh, 240 to 710,000 hospitalizations. So 210 doesn't seem that out of the ordinary. And 13,000 deaths falls well within the 12,000 to 52,000 we've seen over these uh, previous 10 normal seasons. So, you know, it may turn out to be a severe total season, but it doesn't look at the moment, and we're about almost halfway through, that we're necessarily going to exceed uh, what we've seen in prior years. And of course, you know, thrown into the mix here is COVID, which we never had before. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that even with the newer variants, uh, and, and here I, you know, I'm referring really, these are all now at the, at the moment Omicron variants, and the latest and greatest is XBB uh, 1.5. You're getting a lot of cases, but you're not getting... Uh, tremendous amounts, at least, you know, relative to earlier periods of the COVID pandemic, you're not getting tremendous amounts of hospitalizations or deaths. So, you know, you have a situation uh, where uh, uh, we've had peaks in the summer, but since that, of all three things of cases, hospitalizations, deaths, but since that time, you haven't seen huge increases. Hospitalizations have been rising a little bit lately, but as I said, relatively speaking, they're low compared to you know, some of the surges we've had in the past. Now, all of these things could change, but you know, we're not seeing the simultaneous surge and, and the hype is just not warranted. Um, you know, I'd mentioned uh, mask mandates. Uh, they've not been brought back around the country, but there are a few exceptions. Uh, we've seen the reinstatement of mask mandates in public schools in Philadelphia and Camden, New Jersey so far. And as you wrote in your article, the very fact that prominent academics and officials were calling for mandates suggests that the public health apparatus really hasn't learned certain lessons from the COVID pandemic. Uh, few of its representatives seem to have considered the importance of cost-benefit analysis uh, before they start recommending these kind of intrusive restrictions, much less, um, you know, reckon with what is now a, a very significant decline in trust that Americans have in the public health field. So, you know, do you, just to put on your predictive hat for a minute, do you think we'll see mandates return in a widespread way, uh, either now or during um, a future pandemic, perhaps, uh, you know what what is it going to take for the public health world to really think in a in a more uh, effective cost benefit way? Well, the problem from the start has been, as you you know you point out, they have not been thinking in an effective cost benefit way, and and it was known really both before the pandemic and from early on in the pandemic, that masks were not terribly effective in stopping the transmission of COVID. And there was, there was a, you know, a study by the highly regarded Cochrane Library before the pandemic that medical and surgical mask wearing made little difference to the outcome of influenza or influenza-like diseases. Um, and even, you know, in, in the early in the pandemic, there were starting to be uh, randomized control trials, both of 
the effectiveness of masking for COVID and for non-COVID respiratory diseases. And again, there was basically very few studies showed any kind of benefit at all. So the, this is all based on sort of uh, observational studies that had methodological problems as opposed to the randomized clinical clinical control trials, which are the gold standard. Um, and, you know, what we've seen is from countries like Sweden, which one, never closed their schools, two, didn't impose mask mandates, that you didn't get any benefit from in, imposing mask mandates, particularly in the school setting. And again, early on, we knew that children are not terribly vulnerable to this disease. I mean, the, the number of deaths uh, for children has been, you know, less than a few tenths of a percent of the total deaths of, of COVID. So that it's a minuscule amount. Uh, and, and they were never particularly at risk. And, and most of the studies indicated that, you know, teachers were far more likely to get COVID out of school from other adults than they were in school from their students. So, you know, we, this has been pretty clear for some time. But, you know, as to your question, will we see calls for the reimposition of mask mandates. I think if we get a real surge in COVID, uh, you may start getting some of those calls. And particularly, you know, because unfortunately in many of the major cities, including uh, where we are, New York City, teachers unions are extremely powerful. And from the start of the pandemic and right the way through, they have been very vocal in calls to mask everyone, to close down schools, uh, to do everything possible to protect teachers, or at least in their view, protect teachers, even if their view is misguided, uh, with little or no concern uh, for their students. And, and the, it, it, the accumulating evidence indicates that things like mask, certainly school closures for sure, but even mask mandates in, in, if schools are kept open, have real deleterious effects on the students, interferes uh, with their, their educational, their psychosocial development, uh, kids who, you know, who have uh, hearing impairment, and even kids without hearing impairment are having difficulty understanding what's being said to them. Uh, and, and when you look at the educational losses that resulted from the pandemic, they're really staggering in terms of numbers of years of both math reading scores and, and uh, English reading scores. And, and these will sort of reverberate for years to come. These kids, unless action is taken to ameliorate the problem and, and let them catch up, they are going to suffer severe economic consequences going forward. Tens of thousands of dollars in lost earnings for them and in decreased production for the economy. Yeah, in in this context, uh, I don't know if you saw this. Uh, last week, the New Yorker published um, a story from Emma Green about the People's CDC, which is this group of academics, doctors, activists uh, who argue for, in fact, an indefinite, permanent set of restrictions to counteract COVID, and. Uh, they, this group charges that CDC statistics are, in fact, downplaying the severity of the spread of COVID and its long-term effects. So, so to give a sense of this group's, you know, from my perspective, disconnection from reality, um, they 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 recently posted a guide to uh, safe gatherings, which maintained that any event whatsoever should be held outside 
with universal high-quality masking. So everybody outside, everybody wearing masks. Uh, yet, you know, this seems extreme to me. I, I walk around New York now and, and, you know, people are basically acting uh, pretty normally and I'm not seeing a huge amount of mask wearing. Um, yet uh, this group does seem to reflect the views of many people in the public health field. So it's it's received funding from various health-focused philanthropies. There there has been praise for it from from at least some epidemiologists at universities. So you know I I just wonder to what extent does this, to my mind, extreme sensibility reflect um, the disposition of the field, the public health field at large? Well, look, it's contrary to almost all the evidence. You know, and, and we've seen, as I mentioned before, Sweden, which was vilified uh, for not closing down like the rest of Europe and for keeping schools open and allowing people to continue to carry on normal lives with some restrictions, but, you know, really lax compared to everywhere else in the world. Sweden has done better in its health outcomes, or, or at least no worse than most of uh, the EU. So that's one situation. We have a lot of evidence from this country. If you compare the 50 states and the District of Columbia, that states that imposed uh, really severe lockdown measures compared to states that did not, do not have better health outcomes. And I'll point out, by the way, that there's uh, some articles get published over and over again by the same authors saying that, you know, the U.S. has, has done worse and they don't adjust for age uh, distributions. And then they talk about different states. And and again, they don't adjust for different states' age distributions. And and it's a critical flaw in in their writings and in their thinking, because we've known very early on in the pandemic that the uh, mortality rates are exponentially higher for the elderly, and they're higher for people with underlying medical conditions. So, you know, you, you get... It, it's just ridiculous to publish these things, yet you see some uh, presumably reputable journals like JAMA that are publishing these articles. Uh, and, and obviously, as you're pointing out, you have some folks in the public health community. And, you know, if you want to uh, live in a box, uh, you know, like a Diver Dan outfit, perhaps I'm dating myself by making that, but I'm, I'm referring to someone putting on a, a deep sea diving uh uh, outfit with a bell and a an air hose to the surface, yes, you can keep yourself from getting all sorts of diseases. But that's not the way anyone wants to live. And it, it's really counterproductive because it interferes with normal social interactions. It interferes with economic activities. What we needed to do in this setting was to focus on protecting the folks who are most vulnerable. And that, we again, we've known from the start are the elderly and people with underlying medical condi- uh, problems. They formed the vast majority of the people who've been hospitalized uh, and who have uh, died from COVID. And by the way, you know, they're similarly, it's a similar scenario in the flu. Those, the elderly and people with underlying problems are the folks who get sickest from the flu. So, you know, we should be focusing on protecting those folks who are vulnerable uh, and not you know, you know, isolating everyone in, in society. It just cannot be done. It should not be done. And I think all you need to do is look at China to see what happens uh, when you try to do something like that. 
The reality is, uh, you know, economists have known for a very long time that people respond to risk without government mandates. And that's what happened in COVID. You began to both here and in in, uh, other countries in the world, uh, when rates of COVID were high, people took mitigating measures on their own. They didn't go out as much. They avoided crowded indoor areas. Uh, They sometimes began masking on their own, particularly if they were uh, vulnerable. And when rates of COVID go down, people relax and, and they don't engage in those activities. And there's no reason to think that going forward, you won't have that kind of reaction without the sort of uh, blunderbuss and and slow moving government responses. Well, a, a final question uh, would would address China, um, which you just mentioned. So you know, let's look at that briefly. Um, that's the other big COVID story now. The ruling Communist Party has seemingly dismantled almost overnight its its draconian zero COVID policy um, after. I think seeing pretty significant public pushback in the country, uh, reading the uh, alarming economic signs of the effects of zero COVID. So what's gone out uh, have been COVID checkpoints, testing requirements, mandatory quarantines, surveillance teams, the whole thing seems to have been dismantled. Um, Yet it is true that Chinese citizens, uh, and this is especially true among seniors, the most vulnerable, have lower rates of vaccination vaccination than we do uh, broadly in the West, and the Chinese vaccines um, don't seem to be as effective in the country as, at least up until this point, um, rejected the use of Western uh, vaccines, at least the mRNA shots, um, you know, from from Pfizer and. Uh, Moderna. So accordingly, there's been a lot of speculation that a huge wave of infections and deaths is going to hit China. We're certainly hearing about a lot of infections. I just, you know, it's hard to get reliable information out of that country, as, as you no doubt uh, would agree. But I'm, I'm wondering what your assessment is trying to see this from afar right now. Look, you know, the problem with China has been from the start, getting reliable information. Uh, And at the outset of the pandemic, uh, the World Health Organization was complaining that they weren't getting accurate information. Uh, And, you know, a little bit later, it seemed like they tried to cozy up to the Chinese uh, to get a get more reliable information and maybe get some more information on uh, the origins of COVID. Uh, But that hasn't been terribly successful. The Chinese, right from the start, withheld information that this disease was spreading in China. Uh, It it took weeks for it to get out to the U.S. and to the rest of the world. Um, They stonewalled on uh, investigations into whether uh, or not COVID originated in the Wuhan laboratory. Uh, And anyone who believed the figures on China's COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths would, was foolish because they they were trying to project a certain uh, a persona, to, I guess, to the, the rest of the world that they had they were better than the Western countries at combating disease and that their approach was better. And they just were not going to share bad news. 
and I think it eventually became intolerable for the Chinese people. I mean, you they were in a situation where anyone who was tested positive for COVID was going to be confined for weeks in a hospital. And anyone who's even exposed to COVID in the most casual way would be quarantined. So there, were, if nothing else, there was a tremendous incentive among the Chinese people to underreport illnesses and to try to fly beneath the radar. So even if China had been completely honest in reporting its statistics, they were probably skewed because you know, the, the Chinese people were, were trying to dodge these very heavy uh, lockdown type measures. Uh, and there's no doubt you're going to see a, a lot of cases now because you don't have a, a big reservoir of natural immunity built up from uh, people being infected. Although, you know, as I say, we don't really know how many people were infected. Uh, and you, uh, you don't have a lot of a high percentage of the population that was vaccinated. Mostly that's the Chinese government. They were not pushing vaccinations. They may, they didn't the way we did here, even though the vaccine effort here was vilified. In fact, the vaccine effort here was pretty good. Uh, and I think the Chinese people were being led to believe you don't need the vaccine because we have our zero COVID policies and that's what's protecting you. So now you have a situation with with no natural, no vaccine or very low levels of vac- of immunity. And the you have Omicron variants, which are highly transmissible, uh, circulating through the country. So there have been estimates that as much as, you know, 250, 300 million people have been infected in the month of December alone. Uh, yet the Chinese government's holding forth that only a few dozen people have died, which is just completely unbelievable. Uh, so, you know, any, I, I think what we're going to see is a, a wave of COVID. Uh, you're going to see a lot of hospitalizations, although the, the hospital capacity uh, in China is far less than the hospital capacity you know, per capita that we have here in the U.S. And by the way, I, I would point out, you know, vis-a-vis the triple-demic uh, discussion we were having before, even though th- there's all this hysteria here, we are still at the point where we have about 19, 20% of our hospital and ICU bed capacity available. That's not going to be the case in China. They have a much lower capacity to start with, and they will fill those beds very quickly. Uh, and we'll probably never really know how many people are hospitalized and how many people have died. But there are certainly anecdotal reports of morgues uh, and crematoria being filled up with bodies. Well, all very, very useful information, Joel. Uh, always great to have you on. Don't forget to check out Joel Zimberg's work on the City Journal website. He's been covering the pandemic uh, since its beginning for us. That's at www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description so you can find all of that material. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at City Journal underscore MI. Um, as usual, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Joel Zimberg, always great to talk with you. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.